0: to start this morning uh, with a video again that comes out of our kids' curriculum uh, that launches us into this week's topic of the tabernacle. Shannon?
1: God said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to make a sanctuary for me so that I may dwell among them. God gave Moses very specific instructions for building the tabernacle. Make it exactly like I should, God said. Moses told the Israelites everything God had said. He asked them to bring materials. Gold, silver, and bronze. Blue, purple, and scarlet yarn. Wood, oil, spices, and and gemstones. Moses called for anyone who was a skilled craftsman to make everything the Lord had commanded. This included the tabernacle and all its pieces, the Ark of the Covenant, the table for the bread of the presence, the golden lampstand, and many other parts. Every Israelite who felt moved in his heart brought an offering for the tabernacle. God gave two men, Bezalel and Aholiath, special skills for building and creating things. Jezalel, Oholiab, and all the skilled people came together to build the tabernacle for God. At the same time, people kept bringing offerings of what they had. Pretty soon, the craftsmen came to Moses and said, The people are bringing more than enough. We don't need all of this to build the tabernacle as God instructed them. So Moses told the Israelites to stop bringing their offerings. The Israelites built the tabernacle just as God had instructed there were 10 curtains made out of linen that were 42 feet long. 11 curtains made out of goat hair formed a tent over the tabernacle. The planks of acacia wood were 15 feet long and 27 inches wide. Inside the tabernacle, the people made a veil. They made an ark, a table, a lampstand, and many other parts. Of Every part had a special purpose. When the time had come, God told Moses to bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tabernacle. Aaron put on the holy garments, and Moses anointed him to be priest. Aaron's sons were also anointed, so that they would serve God as priests too. Finally, the tabernacle was finished. The cloud where God was covered the tabernacle, and God's glory filled the tabernacle. God made a sign for the people. If the cloud covered the tabernacle, the people would stay where they were. When the cloud lifted from the tabernacle, the Israelites would move and take the tabernacle with them. The cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle during the day, and fire was in it at night. Every one of the Israelites could see it as they traveled. God instructed the Israelites to build a tabernacle so that he could dwell with them. God desires to be with his people. As part of his plan of salvation, God sent Jesus to tabernacle or dwell with the people on earth.
0: kids, you've seen the whole thing, and if you're not busy from watching those hands, uh, now we invite you to draw your own pictures. We're going to just jump straight in uh, to the text this morning. Uh, the first point is that God has a plan, and God's plans are bigger than our circumstances, and so I think the first slide is going to even have a picture of a genie on it uh, from the movie Aladdin, which is, is back again. They just keep making the same movies over and over. Um, but before we get to that, we have seen 24 chapters of God's kindness to his people. He has fought battles for them that they couldn't fight for themselves. They were slaves in Egypt. He has brought them out of Egypt and set them free to serve God. And so you might say, what else could they possibly want? What else could he possibly do for them? And I want us to see that his plans are bigger than their circumstances, because so often we reduce God's plans to our circumstances and what we see in front of us. One author that I like describes this phenomenon using uh, the terms lower story and upper story, and he uses the term lower story to describe the circumstances that we see around us, uh, that God is involved, God is aware of, God has power over the lower story, uh, but what God is doing is the upper story. He's using the circumstances to do something uh, that we don't necessarily see just yet, and so if you asked me, uh, Nathan, what is God doing in your lower story, in your circumstances, I might say something like, well, it's summertime. Some of the things that our family is involved with, some of those things take a break during the summer, so we're in this sort of a uh, two- or three-month season of recalibrating, of trying to figure out uh, what does the fall need to look like and what are the things that the Lord would have us take a step towards and what are the things that maybe the Lord would have us take a step back from. Th- that would kind of be the lower story. Those are our circumstances, what we're involved with, what our kids are involved with. If you ask me, what is he doing in the upper story? What is he doing in and through those circumstances? Part of me would say, I, I don't know yet. <laughs> we're We're in it. But I might speculate and say it seems like one of the things he's wanting to do is to help us orient our lives around him and our calendar around him such that we are following the leading of the Spirit as opposed to making our plans and then moving so quickly down the interstate with our plans that when he points to an exit and says turn, we can't turn. We're going too fast. If we were to turn, the whole thing would uh, crash. Uh, And so. That would be something I speculate God might be doing in the upper story through our circumstances. So we see that God is involved in our circumstances. He has power over our circumstances. He's concerned with, he cares about our circumstances, but he's also doing something bigger. And for our audience, for the Hebrew people, he's doing something bigger than just rescuing them out of slavery. But what we see in them is that they are fixated on their circumstances, and they want him to be like a genie. Did the genie show up? No. He's on there? Oh. Okay. Maybe you can imagine Robin Williams' voice, and the genie cracks jokes, and if you've seen the movie, you know that Aladdin rubs the uh, thing there. The genie comes out, and the genie has one job. The genie's job is to grant wishes to its master. And and so what we see with the Israelite people is they want God to be like a genie. God, give us land. God, give us food. God, give us water. And we know that because the moment they don't have any of those items in abundance, they grumble. They take matters into their own hands and they turn their back on God. And so I think if we're honest, we might see some of those same things in our hearts and in our lives. Uh, maybe you've had some sort of medical issue recently, and you're fighting with insurance. To try to get the insurance company to pay your bill, and you're thinking, come on God, why can't you fix this? It could be so easy, and yet it's so difficult and painful and costly. Maybe you have a boss at work that doesn't seem to affirm you, doesn't seem to recognize your value, doesn't seem to appreciate you, treats you terrible. Come on, God, my last boss was great. Why this person? It could be so much better. Why won't you fix this? And so we often see that the moment God doesn't give us the things that we want, we do the same thing the people of Israel did. We turn our back on, we run from Him, not to Him. We try to fix things in our own strength, try to fix things in our own power, try to come up with a solution on our own, and we see that in our hearts we grumble and we complain. And so I would suggest this morning that if God's purposes, His power, work in our life, if those things are just limited to our circumstances, then He is no better than a parent who spoils a kid only to discover that all the gifts given with good intentions have produced a rotten child. And so I would say that he wants to make us wholly, not merely happy with our circumstances. So he's involved in our circumstances. He's involved bringing the Hebrews out of Egypt. He's involved with giving them all sorts of resources on their way out. He's involved with all the details but he's got a plan that is bigger than those circumstances. If you have your Bibles, we're going to read from Exodus 25, uh, the first eight verses here in just a minute. Not only is God's plan bigger than our circumstances, God's plan involves his people. So God's plan involves us. There's a baseball team there. I just Googled best team in baseball, and that's the picture that came up. And so I figured we'd use it for this morning. Uh, but a baseball team is a great picture, right, because it's a team, and everyone has a part to play, and people play different positions, and sometimes those positions overlap, but mostly they don't. Mostly they kind of live in their own area, and they work together such that the um, sum is greater than the parts, and and that's how a good team works together, and so I want us to see that... Uh, each player wants to be on the field. Each player wants to be in the lineup. They don't like to sit out. They don't like to go on the disabled list. They want to be in the game. God calls His people into the game, and Adam and Eve in the garden, He gives them a job to do right away. Before the fall, He gives them a job to do. Uh, we're going to see in Exodus 25, the first eight verses, that in the construction of this tabernacle, this place where God would dwell with His people, idea of God with us that he invites them to participate in the construction and in gathering the resources. Uh, Exodus 25, 1 through 8 says this, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram's skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense. Verse 7, onks stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. You know that the people, the Hebrew people have nothing on their own. Everything they have God gave them on their way out of Egypt and he has now been so generous to them and then invites them to use what he's blessed them with to participate in his great work. And I love what 2 says. Verse 2 says where uh, the Lord's instruction to Moses are not to fleece the people, not to line them all up and say, okay, take half of everything you have and put it in the box. He just says, as the Lord moves in their heart, for those who are directed to give, give them the opportunity to give. For those who feel led to give, give them the opportunity to give and to participate. And so what we see is that God is not Ultimately, after their valuables. God does not need their money. He doesn't need our money. He owns it all. He gave it all. He can take away it all. He can give a lot more of it. He doesn't need it. He's after their hearts. And so we see the content of their hearts at this time as they generously give. Uh, And so, what's so neat about that is if you're trusting what you have, if you're trusting in your stuff and not trusting in the Lord, you can't be generous with what you have because you have to hoard it for a sense of uh, security or some sort of uh, sense of affirmation. And so we see the Lord putting this test before them. Uh, Where are your hearts at, people? Where are your hearts at? Let each one give who is led to give. I don't need your stuff, but let each one give who is led to give. Uh, If you flip over a few pages to Exodus 31, uh, we see even more about how God invites us into his work. The first couple verses of Exodus 31 talk about God actually pointing out specific individuals and then giving them skills, filling them with his spirit so they can be a part of building this tabernacle. Let me read from Exodus 31. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by my name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work into gold and silver, in bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood to work in every craft. And so the Lord tells Moses, I've got people in mind. I'm going to fill them with my spirit. I'm going to give them gifts, knowledge and expertise, so that they can use that in construction of this tabernacle. And so I love that God gives them this really difficult assignment. Chapters 25 through like 40 kind of read like a a list of uh, things that you might go looking for at Home Depot. He gives them this, huge assignment, and then he gives them everything they need to be faithful, to obey, to bring it about to completion. And so if you're here this morning and you are feeling led of the Lord in a direction, I want to say that the pattern of scripture is that when God leads you somewhere, he gives you, and he is in fact what you need to bring that to completion. That he doesn't send us out and then leave us or abandon us to navigate it, On our own. He is what we need. He gives His people what we need to bring about to completion. Some of you have co workers, you have family, Uh, you have friends, you have neighbors that nobody else has. And God has sent you there put you in that place of work, put you in that neighborhood, put those kids on your kids' soccer team in their orchestra for the purpose of declaring the power of Jesus to save wherever you go. Uh, Consider Matthew 28. It's a verse that we we try to read a lot. Matthew 28, uh, verses 19 and 20 say this, "...Go therefore and make disciples of all nations." baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. How do we fulfill that huge command to declare the power of Jesus to save to everyone we meet, everywhere we go? He says, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so our reluctance Uh, In walking an obedient path, our reluctance with God's commands is not a function of our gifting, is not a function of a lack of opportunity. Our reluctance is often a lack of trust in the one who said he would be with us to the end of the age. And so the encouragement or the challenge or the exhortation is to speak up courageously, boldly, to trust God to pray for those around you, to pray for your neighbors, to pray for your coworkers, to pray for your family members with courage to speak up in love and trust that God will give you what you need to be faithful and obedient with what He's called you to do, trusting that He will be with us to the end of the age. We had uh, friends with us last week, and their 8-year-old loved uh, collecting the eggs and feeding the cow. Loved it. First one up out the door ready to go and ready to help. We didn't have to require him to do it. We didn't have to bribe him like you won't get breakfast if you don't help. Uh, There was none of that. He was first out the door. He was ready to go. He loved it. Why did he love it? It It's such an affirming thing to be invited to participate, isn't it? Isn't it such an affirming thing to be given a job, to be given a responsibility, to be given a part to play that is maybe something that is uniquely well-suited for you? So I just want us to see that God calls us into the game. And so kids, you have teachers and kids at school that God has positioned you for the purpose of you showing them his love. Some of you feel too young. Some of you feel too old to be used to be used by God. I would just say from Scripture that you're neither, that you're right where God wants you with courage to speak up, to trust Him. He has given us everything we need to complete the task in front of us. As we continue, the third and final point for this morning is God's plan is all about His presence. And so I don't have a great story for that. I've never seen that actually happen in real life. I'm sure it did because someone took a picture. Um, But that little bear just seems to be at ease. The little bear just seems to be at rest. Uh, The little bear seems to be very content. And so I just thought, what a great image of this idea of the presence of God, not a care in the world. Who knows? uh, Maybe there's another bear just outside of this picture there and that bear is getting standing on hind legs and getting ready to attack uh imagine whatever you want the little bear is at ease right not a care in the world uh, because that little bear is with mama bear and so what a neat uh, picture of the presence of god with his people and the peace that is available to us Uh, and so let's get into the temple now 25 or tabernacle chapters 25 through 27 really uh, have this very detailed description of what the tabernacle looks like. We've got a couple pictures. Here's the first one, uh, but you see this big rectangle. It's about 150 feet by 75 feet, and so that you would walk in. The entrance is on the east, approximately 30-foot-wide entrance with a huge tapestry, a huge woven curtain or woven rug. ...that you would walk through, and there would be two items that you would first see in the courtyard... ...a bronze wash basin and then a bronze altar. Uh, it's a, a giant grill, approximately 7 like seven and a half feet by seven and a half feet. And so uh, the bronze wash basin and the bronze grill, and that's where they would purify themselves... ...and that's where they would offer sacrifices to the Lord. And then moving from east to west, as you get through about halfway through the courtyard you see uh, this more uh, solid structure. That's what became known as the tabernacle. It was also referenced as the tent of meeting. It's about 45 feet uh, long by 15 feet wide. It would have a, a big, that same kind of curtain at the front. The curtain would be open during the day. So for a Hebrew person worshiping in the courtyard during the day, they could kind of get a little peek at what the Inside of that tabernacle look like, that first room in where you see three items, you see a golden lampstand that would have been about five or six feet uh, high, had seven places for candles, and was built and hammered out of pure gold uh, to resemble almond blossoms. You see a table for the bread of presence, also called the table of showbread. Uh, And then the third item there, you see an altar. And then you see another area where there would have been a a heavy curtain, and that takes you in to the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was. And the Ark of the Covenant would have been about a four-foot-by-two-foot box, uh, overlaid in gold. Uh, On top of that would have been a solid gold lid or solid gold covering uh, with two cherubim essentially facing each other, uh, heads sort of bowed low, uh, wings sort of outstretched like this, uh, pointing towards the center of the box. And so I I want you to kind of just think about the tabernacle as, uh, in a sense, God's home. And and so, kids, if we walked into your bedroom this morning, besides the fact that we might find a horrific mess because you didn't know we were coming and didn't have time to repair, if you had time to repair, you probably would have made it look wonderful uh, and it wouldn't smell at all. It would be clean. But we might see on your walls pictures of things you like. There might be sports posters. There might be uh, posters of a band that you like. Maybe Star Wars posters. There might be toys on shelves that you like to play with. Maybe toys all over the floor, possibly, that you like to play with. And if we looked around, we might get a sense for some of the things that you like to do, for some of the things that would kind of describe or define who you are, right? A house is kind of a personal thing. Our bedrooms are kind of a personal thing uh, that in some ways reflect who we are. And so the house of God in so many ways is going to reflect to us who he is and these items are going to teach us about who he is, what he's doing, how he relates to us and who we are. So just a couple observations that we get about who God is, about how he relates to us, about who we are from looking at the tabernacle. And you can jump forward one more screen to sort of a three-dimensional view. Uh, And this is neat because you can see uh, the structure. You can see the multiple curtains, the the barriers between the different sections. And you can see that it's uh, kind of tent-like in the sense that there's going to be three layers of fabric over the top. The outer layer is an animal skin that's weather resistant. The second layer is a goat's hair. And the third layer is gonna more closely resemble the curtains, so it's gonna be woven, uh, a woven tapestry, uh, it's gonna be beautiful uh, from the best materials available. Um, let's bump forward one more slide to the items in there. Uh, so those are the things that I mentioned that are in the, in the tabernacle. Uh, Here's some things that we learn about God. First, all of the items, the detailed instructions, uh, the precious materials, the barriers from one place to another, all of it speaks to the holiness of God. The very best materials were used speaks to the holiness of God. The fact that Hebrew people couldn't get into the holy place speaks to the holiness, the fact that God is set apart from us, the fact that God is high above us, the fact that only the priest could go in there, the fact that only the high priest could go into the holy of holies and only one time of year speaks to the holiness of God. And so if you were a Hebrew person coming into worship, immediately you would be struck by the holiness of God. One of the interesting things is the light, um, This the candlestand with seven candles would have been the, the brightest light in camp. And so it would be lit perpetually. And so at night they camped in circles around the tabernacle. And so from the center of camp you would always see this light that reminded you of the presence of and the holiness of God. And so if you're a Hebrew person worshiping, you come in and what do you have to do right away? You have to wash yourself because you're not worthy. You have to offer a sacrifice because you have missed God's mark. Hebrews talks about without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. And so this is a very vivid picture, a very vivid reminder for each Hebrew person that comes in and has to offer a sacrifice, essentially saying, I have missed the mark. Something needs to pay the punishment, pay the penalty. Blood must be shed for how poorly I have missed God's mark. A sacrifice is offered and a sacrifice is necessary to be near the presence of God. And so we see the holiness of God and we see the fact that God's people are not holy and that a punishment must happen that as blood must be shed a sacrifice must be made for that punishment we also see that that god is extraordinarily merciful towards his people Uh, if you turn back with me to exodus 25 verses 21 and 22 the lord describes this Ark of the Covenant, and he describes what's called the mercy seat that sits on top of the Ark. It's the lid. And he says, it is there that I will meet with you. It's there that I will communicate with you. Exodus 25, 21, and 22. The Lord says, and you shall put the mercy seat on top of the Ark and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So where is it that God meets with His people? At the mercy seat. Isn't it interesting that the Lord's response to our failure is mercy. The enemy's response to our failure is despair. The Lord meets us at the mercy seat. The Lord met the high priest at the mercy seat. Jesus meets us at the cross at the greatest symbol of love and mercy that we have. He meets us at the mercy seat. I made a mess of something about two weeks ago, and I may be like you, but what's your response to some sort of failure? Guilt? Shame? I'm going to fix this. Make it right. I can do it. I got this. Um, maybe the sense that my failures or my missteps uh, are going to plague uh, my future. like I'm just never going to be out of this entanglement or Uh, Maybe that that these things define who I am. Isn't it interesting that that is where God meets us? And so my challenge to you, if the enemy is succeeding in drawing you into despair in the midst of your failure, I would say let the Lord use your failure to crush your self-reliance and discover his mercy and discover that in his presence he meets us at the mercy seat. If you're there, you you must hear from the text that God is ready to meet you there to pick you back up and to call you into his service. A couple uh, maybe points by way of summary. Um, One of the things that we see from Genesis through where we're at now, in the, towards the end of Exodus, is that God is constantly calling His people back into His presence. In the garden, it started with Adam and Eve and God in the garden. There was unity, there was togetherness. His presence, He dwelt among them. In Exodus 40, we're going to see uh, the Spirit of God descend on the tabernacle and it fills the tabernacle with His glory. It says it fills the tabernacle with with His presence. And so one of the things that we've got to understand is what we need more than better circumstances is the presence of God in our life. The presence of God is the only remedy for injustice. Injustice that others have done to us, injustice that we see in the world, injustice that we have done to others. The presence of God is the only remedy for injustice. And that is most fully realized in Jesus, Matthew one twenty three says this about Jesus. It said, All of this, talking about the birth of Jesus, took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And many of you know what follows in parentheses, which means God with us. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we read that in him in Jesus the fullness of God was pleased to dwell such that we understand that in the in a way like the presence of the Lord filling the tabernacle now in Jesus the fullness of God's presence comes to dwell with man comes to dwell with us this is not inviting this is not God inviting us into his neighborhood this is God moving in and saying come on over interestingly enough in revelation 21 Uh, we're going to read that there is no temple, that the Lord God himself is the temple. And we're going to read throughout that chapter that the theme of the new heaven and the new earth is God with us. Over and over, God with us. And, And so God's presence with us means some things. It means that we will never be sent out to do what He's asked without the presence of God going with us to bring about to completion the things that He's called, called us to do. We will never be sent out in life. We will never encounter difficulty. We will never encounter unexpected things that His presence is not with us in that moment sufficient for us to overcome. If you're someone who leans on other things for security, for many of us it's uh, finances or resources or wealth, uh, things that can be lost, things that can be squandered, things that can be stolen, things that can be devalued. The presence of God can never be lost or stolen. The presence of God can never be devalued or destroyed. And so we've got to see that in this idea of the presence of God, that He is our greatest need. He is our greatest joy. We don't just need larger 401k retirement plans. We don't just need better jobs, more peace in our home, better behaved kids, kids that do better at school. We need His presence. What the world needs is not just legislation that fixes all immorality or makes it illegal. What the world needs is the presence of God. And how do they get that? Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations, and I am with you always to the ends of the earth, to the ends of the age. And so um, one of the things that we're going to see with the Hebrew people, they, for virtually all of their existence are are going to stand with one foot in and and one foot out. And we're going to see them waffle back and forth. And God is going to provide for them, and they are going to follow Him and worship Him. And then two chapters later, they're going to be building altars to false gods and worshiping them. They're they're going to go back and forth. And so, um, I don't know, maybe this will (laughs) speak to the kids in the room and maybe not be entirely not useful to adults, but I think of the Uh, towel dispensers in our bathroom and we have the ones where you have to pull down and so if you've used those ones you know that there's instructions right two hands it says very carefully two hands like driving at 10 and 2 two hands you grab the right side and the left side and you pull down and what happens if you just use one hand and grab one corner and pull down the sheet rips right the sheet rips and so the instructions are to two hands and pull And it's supposed to work perfectly, and all of your problems, all the world's problems, will be solved. And so I would suggest that for many of us with the Lord, uh, what we're doing is taking hold of that paper towel with one hand and pulling, and we keep being surprised or shocked that the paper towel rips. And so as we think about the presence of God, again, The Israelites encamped in circles around the tabernacle. All of life revolved around the presence of God. Their physical location where they slept revolved around the presence of God. Their worship, their animals, their livelihood... When they moved and when they stayed, it all revolved around the presence of God. They were at Mount Sinai for about 14 months. They didn't leave until the Spirit of God lifts and says, let's go. And then they pack up and they follow. everything revolved around the presence of God. So if you're here this morning and you keep reaching with one hand, another hand is holding on to relationships, uh, pursuits, hobbies, jobs, expectations that you have of yourself, expectations that your spouse has of you, expectations that someone, who knows, somewhere uh, put on you. Uh, My challenge to you this morning is just to take hold with two hands and cling to the Lord. What would it have been like for the people of Israel? What would it have been like for the Hebrews? They could have just clung to Him. we wrap up this morning's service, Uh, the band is going to come up and and lead us in a closing song uh, for worship. Uh, We're going to receive this morning's uh, offering. We're going to have some of our kids helping us. Kids, keep your hands out of those bags. (laughs) Um, Not really. They're great. Uh, If the Lord has put something on your heart, uh, use the green card card. Write a prayer request on that. Put that in the offering bag. The main reason we do the offering bags is so that we can have that communication uh, together as a body. We're going to have prayer teams up at the front. Take advantage of those cards. Take advantage of the prayer team for the purpose of inviting someone to help you cling to the Lord, to take those requests to the Lord. Uh, Even confession where you could recognize I've been clinging to other things and I can't figure out why the sheet keeps ripping. Uh, I feel the Lord calling me to cling to two hands. I want someone to pray for me to to help me do that. Take advantage of the prayer team. Put it on a card so that we can pray for you this week. Uh, Join me in prayer. Lord God, we confess that we have a duplicitous heart, Lord, and we want to cling to to anything that seems stable or sure and we are so quick to let go of you Lord forgive us for trying to right our own wrongs forgive us for trying to fix what's broken forgive us for trying uh, to find peace, uh, rest security, purpose Lord in our endeavors rather than sitting in Your presence, rather than clinging to You and trusting that You'll be enough for today and that You'll be enough for tomorrow and every tomorrow after. Lord, for those of us here who are doing life all on our own, Lord, may this morning, even morning, where we reach out to You and take hold and cling to You, Lord, stir in our hearts, that we might let go of the lesser to take hold of the greater, believing, Lord, your plan is so much bigger than our circumstances. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.